This is In Conversation from Apple News Today. I'm Duarte Geraldino. Every weekend, we're taking you deeper into the best journalism on Apple News. Today on In Conversation, you're going to meet Jason Parham. He's a senior writer at Wired. He recently came out with an article called A People's History of Black Twitter. This is an oral history of how Black Twitter came to be, as told by the people who were there. Black Twitter is one of the most influential parts of the internet. It's the driving force behind countless memes, hashtags, and also social justice movements. It started off as an online place where Black people could come together and joke around, but it has evolved into something that's changed the real world. It played a big role in Black Lives Matter and the Me Too movement. And as Parham told me, it's hard to encapsulate everything that Black Twitter is. Black Twitter is the ultimate multiverse. It's call and response. It's a therapy session. It's the cookout. It's a soul train line. Um, It's judge and jury. It's all these things coming together in one place. Um, The sort of like Black landscape of like love and joy and community, but also like realness at the same time. You can read Parham's article on Apple News with an Apple News Plus subscription. When I talked with Parham, he took me through the history of Black Twitter, each phase and subtle evolution. He also pointed out how Twitter's vast accessibility made Black people and Black culture vulnerable to exploitation and appropriation. Twitter is not an exclusively Black space, and yet... This history talks about Black people carving out their own space within the broader platform. How would you define who's there, who's making the content? It is Black people, but is it just Black people? I would say the majority of people that are involved in Black Twitter are Black. But uh, someone I spoke with, April Rain, who is the creator um, of the Oscar So White hashtag, she was saying how, like, you know, obviously not everybody is, who is Black is also on Black Twitter. One person she brought up was Candace Owens, the conservative news commentator, which I think is, which I thought was pretty hilarious um, because she doesn't necessarily identify with a lot of things that are happening on Black Twitter. So I don't know if everybody who is Black is even part of Black Twitter, but it's it's it's, it's tough. It's hard to... It's hard to sometimes put a nose on it, right, which is, I think was part of the struggle in putting the oral history together because I was like, how can I best encompass all that this thing is, right? And so I think an oral history lent itself to that in that way. Black Twitter, it's if you know it, you know it. But if you don't know it, let's set this up. Just how influential is Black Twitter? Talk about why you think it's worthy of this massive oral history. I mean, it's pushed the culture in so many ways, right? One one person I spoke with, Judnick Mayard, she's a TV writer and producer um, from uh, New York, but she lives in L.A. now. Something she said just really blew my mind. She was like, Black Twitter invented language. And I what? was like, what does that mean? Like, <laughs> but that's why I was like, well, what do you mean by that? And I thought it was so hilarious, but also kind of profound in the way that I think a lot of the idioms, a lot of the language used on Black Twitter, a lot of the ways we speak and communicate is co-opted by brands, is co-opted by major companies. And so in that way, we're we're driving and moving the culture in a lot of ways I think people don't recognize and see, which is also why it was important for me to document what we were doing on Black Twitter. You took the entirety of Black Twitter and you sort of structured it into three distinct eras— 
Lay that out for us. Early on, it kind of begins around 2008, 2009. You know, Ashley Weatherspoon, somebody I spoke with, she worked for Adrian Bailon, who's a you know pop singer for 3LW and the Cheetah Girls. They were working on social media strategy, trying to figure out how they could essentially go viral. And this is 2009. Twitter's still fairly new. They're thinking of all these hashtags. And one they come up with is, you know you're black when. And it kind of just pops off on Twitter in this sort of volcanic way, right? And that specific day on Twitter, you have all these folks sort of chiming in, saying, you know you're black when, you cancel your plans when it rains. You know you're black when, you know, you have tall, wear tall tees or have, you know, 20-inch rims on your cars. It hadn't existed or people hadn't gathered together and gravitated towards each other in that way around a specific hashtag on Twitter um, in any way like that before. So it was really special in that sense. So the first phase is sort of this Wild West free-flowing period um, when people defined it as, you know, we had Twitter after dark. You had things like people really described it as a college campus feel. People would come to Twitter and just want to commune with their friends and talk about things that were going on. You'd see a lot of stray observations. You even had popular stars like Rihanna and Questlove and Snoop Dogg sort of talking to fans. It was a really direct one-to-one communication platform. And then things change around 2013, 2014, when Trayvon Martin dies. And then you have Michael Brown being shot in Ferguson a year later. And then that's when that platform takes a real drastic shift into its social justice era. And then you fast forward a little bit, I, I would say around the end of the Obama era, the Trump era, you have this sort of third act that we're in right now, or the third generation of Black Twitter, which is still in a lot of ways defining itself. It's defined a lot by the hardship and the craziness of the Trump era, but a lot of levity and joy and humor that was happening at the same time. You mentioned that pivot to social justice, Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown. How linked were those demonstrations with what was happening on Twitter? I mean, this was its probably, I would just say, its most pivotal moment, right? This was the moment. I was talking to Janetta Elsey. She's an activist in Ferguson. She was saying the day that Michael Brown got shot, you know, a lot of people were messaging her on Twitter saying, hey, Netta, have you seen this? Do you see what's going on? You should get down there. Um, and she was saying that her partner at the time was saying, you know, this is the time when you have to make a decision. Um, and so you see this happening on the platform a lot around this time where, Another person I spoke with, Professor Sarah Jackson, she was saying it's, you know, hashtag activism, right, where you have the platform sort of transitioning into a platform where you're not only creating change online, but the change you're talking about online is creating change in the real world, IRL. So you're seeing this a lot more around that time. Black Lives Matter, that very name, it's an Internet phenomenon by nature, right? You're talking about creating change in real life. How was this internet hashtag able to break through? So Black Lives Matter actually has roots in Facebook. It was created on Facebook in response to, you know, the, the killing of Trayvon Martin. Um, but it sort of grew and became what it is today, the movement it is today through Black Twitter and people pushing it forward on the platform. Um, one thing, Wesley Laurie, who's a correspondent for 60 Minutes, but at the time he was working at The Post, you know, he was one of the big reporters down on the ground in Ferguson. And I was like, what was it about Black Lives Matter that caught on? Because around the same time, you had a lot of other hashtags popping up around separate uh, killings that were happening across the country, right? 
With Trayvon Martin, you had If They Gun Me Down. With Michael Brown, you had Hands Up, Don't Shoot. With Laquan McDonald, you had 17 shots. But there were something very specific about Black Lives Matter that was this sort of umbrella hashtag that was a critique to the larger system that was oppressing what was oppressing Black folks across the country. It sort of encapsulated everything that we wanted to say. You know, it was a radical thing to say at the time, Black Lives Matter. Nobody was saying that, right? At least white folks weren't saying that, right? And so it was very radical to sort of even utter that online. It it doesn't seem so now, but back in 2013, 2014, it seemed wild to say something like that. I think that's what, in, in a way, caught fire into the larger movement it is today. You write about that movement, and you say there was a shift recently, in particular after the last presidential election. Has there been an evolution in Black Twitter that extends beyond social justice? Black Twitter will never not be a platform for social justice. I think, you know, since 2014, it will always, no matter what, be a platform for the underrepresented, the marginalized, the other, the oppressed, the queer. I think it will be a place where people can speak out in ways that they feel important. But it's more than that. And I think it was important for me in doing this to show that Black Twitter wasn't just pain. It wasn't just police killings. It wasn't just saying, hey, we're hurting, we're grieving. You have things that are born out of Black Twitter. You have Black Lives Matter becoming its own thing. But Black Twitter itself is still doing what it does. People are still on the platform, you know, joking around. Some people are still on the platform sharing relationship advice. People are still on the platform, you know, being raunchy after 11 p.m. of Twitter after dark. I think that the platform, Black Twitter itself, is still this ecosystem that's constantly sort of um, transforming in ways that even sometimes I couldn't see in reporting the story. I think it's hard, right? Black women play a prominent role in this oral history. Talk to us about what that role is. I mean, Black women are, in a lot of ways, in the way that they're the backbone of the country, they're the backbone of Black Twitter, I would say. They have been so fundamental to so many of the movements, the sort of offshoot movements that have been born through Black Twitter. We have all these hashtags that are speaking to gender justice and racial justice in ways that, I think Black women, in a lot of ways, wouldn't have gotten credit for if it wasn't for Black Twitter. Um, One of those sources, I spoke with Jamila Lemieux, who's an essayist and a cultural critic for Slate. She was saying how, like, you know, it's really tough being a Black woman online. And she has constantly, from the day she's been on there, gotten threats, gotten harassed, gotten, you know, saying, I'm going to come to your house and I'm going to kill you. Um... But she continues on because the platform is so essential in bringing light to all the other things in her community and all the other things that she finds important, right? And I think a lot of Black women operate in that way. April Rain was also saying the same thing. You know, the larger your platform gets, the more harassment you naturally get as a Black woman online. And it's so true of Twitter where, you know, they're constantly getting trolled. People are constantly coming into their DMs, you know, with with negative thoughts, um, but they continue to do what they do because the platform helps to shine a light in, in areas that they feel needed. For Black women, it sounds like a double-edged sword here. I'm hearing you talk about how this platform is essential for lifting up voices, but then they get too big and they start attracting these waves of toxicity. How do you explain that? Or what do you make of this tension? I mean, I think both things can be true, right? It is, as I said in the beginning, this multiverse 
you know, it, it, it's joy and pain, it's discord and harmony, it's all these things together. And I think you're right. There is a, t- a ton of vitriol. There is a ton of hate. And that's just sort of naturally what the internet is, I think, especially when you're a person of color online. You naturally get that. And I think that's, that's, that's part of what comes with Black Twitter. So Black Twitter is this public space online. And as a public space in a public forum or a cultural marketplace, as I like to describe it, you have people constantly looking at what's going on in your world. But some of those people don't necessarily identify with your platform. That obviously has an effect on the platform, but that necessarily change the intention of what Black Twitter is for, what the people on the platform are trying to do. You wrote a piece last year about TikTok and the evolution of what you call digital blackface. And you identify ways in which these new emerging medias are allowing Black creators to essentially be ripped off. And I'm talking about their content, their dance moves, their jokes, their language, all stolen by the wider culture. But this pattern, it predated the internet, right? I mean, is history repeating itself? I mean, I think it is. You know, we're not in charge of these platforms, and so I think it's tough to dictate who gets to do what and how people get to operate. Um, You know, these platforms weren't built with Black people in mind, and so we come on them and we make them our own and we add value to them in ways that people didn't expect. But, you know, we're still being taken advantage of. Our labor, as you said, is still being exploited. Um, I think TikTok is obviously the most perverse example of that because it's the most in-demand app. And I think it lends itself to a sort of 3D realness in a way that Twitter doesn't, right? Twitter, when you see exploitation on Twitter or um, co-optation on Twitter or appropriation on Twitter, it's flat. But on TikTok, you see things like, you know, people pretending to speak how they expect Black folks to speak, right? People embodying the the rhythms and the gestures and the affectations of housewives or these sort of VH1 reality stars that they beloved. Um, but it's not necessarily the full scope of what we call Black cultural identity. Um, I think it's a very skewed sense of what they think Black people are. You know, one of the most perverse examples I came across in my reporting for that particular story on TikTok last year was the sort of stereotypical, what they call the hot Cheeto girl. You would see a lot of white creators putting, you know, tape on their fingernails, like they had these long fingernails, these hoop earrings, eating Cheeto bags, talking sort of like these around-the-way girls that they would see in sort of these 90s movies, um, this sort of low-income youth. This idea that they had of this is what, you know, young black youth act like um, and operate like. And so... It's really, really troubling. But I think, as you know, those tensions will always exist as long as America is America, unfortunately. Finally, let's look at how you structured this piece, this oral history. These snippets of dialogue from all these different people. It's a really unique way of telling a story, and it doesn't read like a typical magazine article. What made you decide to go about it this way? There were a lot of ways that I wanted to attack this story from the onset, but I thought that an oral history lent itself to sort of what Black Twitter or what the essence of Black Twitter is, right? You literally have hundreds of thousands of people on the platform every day speaking, sharing, um, talking about their day. 
And I don't think I could have done it justice if I reported this as a sort of investigative look at Black Twitter. And I also don't think that would have lent itself to the sort of um, genius that's inherent within the platform. I think I, I, I owed it to other folks and the people that have been on Black Twitter from the beginning and that are on there still to let them speak up and say something. Black history itself has always been an oral tradition, right? Way, way, way back, you know, our stories were told orally. Um, and I, and so part of that was important for me to sort of structure the story in that way as well. I wanted other people to have just as much of a stake in the story as I did. You know, it's not my story, it's their story. I'm as, as much as I am a part of Black Twitter, it's not my story to tell only. And I think that was important for me to do it in that way that we did the oral history. Jason Parham, he's a senior writer for Wired. Thanks for being on Apple News today. Thank you. Parham's three-part feature, A People's History of Black Twitter, is available for Apple News Plus subscribers. iPhone users can subscribe in the Apple News app. You can also find it on Wired.com. And look out for an upcoming documentary based on Parham's piece. It's made by Wired Studios in partnership with Culture House. <laughs> 